The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Mari, you know, when we agreed on this topic, remember, I told you we'd be playing with fire. But you and I both realized that we were onto something special and we just couldn't let it go. We don't really get to talk about important things that challenge us very often. So here we go. Let's get into a little good trouble, as I shared with someone this morning. Before I go into into what I've learned from considering these events any further, I want to acknowledge, recognize, and pay respect to those men and women who defended our country, including those who wrestled with the decisions to use nuclear weapons. The bombing of Hiroshima and the observance of the Assumption of Mary into heaven, these are huge events in the landscape of human affairs. In this sacred space today, and at this time of year, we will explore, interpret, and lift up both for further reflection and examination. They are very different events. The example of Mary's life, the hope of Assumption Day, and the horror of Hiroshima. They may seem jarringly contrasting, but both, on deeper reflection, guide me to the same conclusion. For millions of Catholics and others, Assumption Day represents the recognition of Mary's life lived in concert with the call of the sacred. For many, her life's example embodied sacrifice, redemption, and reconciliation of human existence with the divine, and her assumption into heaven, bypassing death entirely, is the culmination of a life spent in service to the sacred. For millions more, the story of the bombings of Hiroshima and three days later, Nagasaki, reminds us of the wages of sin, of war, and of the ultimate price of destruction. In contrast to the premise or promise of eternal life, the dropping of the atomic bombs on military and civilian targets resulted in never-before-witnessed destruction, long-lasting consequences, and knowledge that humanity now holds tightly in its hands the seeds of its own extermination. As Mari and I wrestled with these events, both sacred and profane, I was struck by the fact that there were no easy answers to the issues that divided us then. There aren't any now, and there won't be any in the future. As I prepared my remarks, I was reminded again and again that any attempt at quick and easy reconciliation with the sins of our past is a fool's errand. Reconciliation is not easy, it is not cheap, it is not easily entered into. On deeper reflection, 
And as these events challenge us in different ways, they can also teach us what is promised through a commitment to faith and reconciliation, something we hope to share with you this morning. Richard, oh Richard, I know that when you said that we're playing with fire, you're being self-effacing and in no way making light of the anniversaries that fall on this day. Out of respect for the subjects we're handling, I'll be offering my personal experiences and perspectives as explorations, not declarations. And I hope that the holes in my reasoning will be visible and serve as openings for deeper discernment for us all. I'm aware that the topic of Mary is sacred to many. It's sacred to me too, but not in an Orthodox Catholic way. I'm also conscious of the fact that I will be using gendered terms for the divine in this narrative because the story of Mary is characterized in this way. For me, the feminine and masculine divine are partial and imperfect attempts to describe the indescribable, the source of life. Still, I do connect with larger spiritual implications that can be gleaned from the story. I dedicate my sermon to my grandmother, my abuelita, Guadalupe Martinez Ramos, a devout Catholic who was named after the indigenous Mexican virgin of Guadalupe. Mary has been in my consciousness since I can remember because in Mexico, she's ubiquitous. But there is a memory from early childhood that stands out for me. I was laying down for an afternoon nap in my grandmother's bedroom, and I was looking at a framed picture of Mary that was on a shelf next to the bed. My grandmother had placed a doily and some candles in front of it. It began to dawn on me slowly that I could smell the candles softened wax because my grandmother had been lighting them in private. This rattled me. Until that moment, it hadn't occurred to me that my abuelita, the sun around which my whole family, and by extension, my whole world revolved, my abuelita could have a life somewhere beyond my scope and reach. I lay in the quiet of what I now understood was Abuelita's private sanctuary and stared at the picture of Mary trying to comprehend. In the picture, Mary was holding a baby, but his proportions were those of a grown man giving him a doll-like quality. I got the impression that the baby who was sitting on her left forearm was fidgety because one of his sandals was falling off. There were two little cherubs whizzing around their heads like fat bumblebees, playful little pests. They were playing musical instruments. What delighted me even more was that the baby had both of his tiny little doll hands wrapped around his mama's thumb as he watched them. Mary seemed unperturbed by the stir. The picture made me smile. Mary reminded me of my abuelita who was just as patient and indulgent with me. I could see why they were friends. Comforted by the pleasant scene, my disquiet evaporated and I 
I dozed off. I now know that what I was actually looking at was a 13th century painting called Our Lady of Perpetual Help, one of a class of icons called Cardiotisa, which means having a heart or showing sympathy, mercy, and compassion. An article from Catholic News, the Catholic News Agency clarifies what was actually happening in the painting. The doll-like baby I saw was the Christ child, shown with an adult face and highbrow, indicating his divine mind of infinite intelligence. The bumblebee cherubs were the archangels Gabriel and Michael, holding not musical instruments, but instruments of the child's future passion, the cross, the lance, and the sponge. So the baby wasn't fidgety. He was frightened, and it jumped into Mary's arms for protection, causing him to lose his right sandal. Those sweet little hands were gripping her thumb out of terror. And the unperturbable calm I saw in Mary's face, it was resignation. So who is Mary? This woman whose courage and compassion are so great that God himself runs to her for comfort. His mother. The primogenial author of his understanding about what it means to be in a relationship. She is his compassionate guide. But she is not soft. Having myself raised a son, I find it striking that in the painting, Mary is not pulling her baby away from the frightful visage of the angels. Instead, she is modeling spiritual grit by not shielding him from the reality of the pain he must endure if he is to mature and reconcile with the world. Still, she exemplifies compassion and fidelity by holding her trembling child and facing his destiny with him. In her book about the Gnostic Gospels, author Elaine Pagel describes the relationship between mother and son. She writes, quote, often in the Gnostic texts, the creator is castigated for his arrogance nearly always by a superior female power, unquote. Pagel notes that according to texts discovered at a site called Nag Hammadi, the mother of God at times objects to his behavior and tells him so directly, quote, he became arrogant saying, it is I who am God and there is no other apart from me. And a voice came from the realm of absolute power, saying, You are wrong, Samael, which means God of the blind. End quote. Certain Gnostics called the Divine Mother wisdom, the great creative power from whom thing, all things originate. In a passage from the book that is relatable to anyone who has raised a teenager, 
We can see the parenting process in action when Mother Wisdom steps in to mitigate a harm that her son has caused in an act of impulsivity. Quote, when the Creator became angry with the human race because they did not worship and honor him as Father and God, he sent forth a flood upon them that he might destroy them all. But wisdom opposed him, and Noah and his family were saved in the ark by means of the sprinkling of light that proceeded from her." Unquote. Mary, the universal mother, knows that the process of maturing requires not just tempering of the ego, but its full surrender she knows that her son will eventually learn that he can't coerce his creation to love him by using force. He will have to earn their love. Only when he evolves to the point where he is prepared to sacrifice himself, and by sacrifice I don't just mean dying on the cross, but living a complete life among us, accompanying us, body and soul, without privileging himself to avoid suffering. Only then can he meaningfully enter into living covenant with his creation. It takes time to earn trust. It can only be substantiated by living a life a life worthy of it. His sacrifice will show that he has stopped using us and has started loving us, that he has matured from incautious child to compassionate father, that he has become worthy of the title. To me, this is the story of reconciliation. There is no quick way to attain it, no quick fix, no shortcuts, because it is a process of maturing, of building trust. And that takes, well, the time it takes. For me, the crucifixion is the climax of the story, but if we believe in autonomy, then the denouement looks like going back to the beginning and starting over again every time a new person comes into the world, every time a new person enters our lives. Reconciliation isn't a one-off thing. It's a never-ending story, a story that invites us to become our lady of perpetual help to one another, to share our wisdom, to hold each other in faithful accountability, to give each other grace to grow, to accompany one another with compassion, with relentless devotion as we find our way to spiritual maturity each in our own time. I believe that heaven is here, heaven is now that it is what we make of it moment by precious moment together. 
I don't describe to the belief that the world is a mess because humanity is at core evil or broken. I'm apt to think that the world is a mess because it's full of super intelligent doll babies. Because intelligence isn't wisdom. We keep chasing our toys, the toys we make, into the street without looking both ways. So maybe the world, Richard, maybe the world is a nursery where the babies have run amok. <laughs> I've never challenged what I was told and what I learned about the bombings. It was complicated, I heard. It was necessary to end the war, President Eisenhower. The only way to avoid an invasion of Japan and greater loss of life, General Douglas MacArthur. A terrible necessity, Winston Churchill. Most of us in this room were affected in some way by the wartime use of atomic weapons, if only in our collective memory, through the experience of our parents or grandparents. It's still in the collective memory of our country and certainly in our culture, witness references to the Cold War and peace through mutually assured destruction. Everything I read and learned about it, I accepted in silence, but something continued to gnaw at me. Today, I recognize that if I don't wrestle with settled truths that gnaw at me, how can I speak up with authenticity? And if we don't address issues authentically, how can we collectively avoid the mistakes of the past? Two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan, the first on August 6th and the second on August 9th, 1945. Over three days, between 129 and 226,000 people died, the majority of whom were civilians. Today, I have no ambiguity around the morality of those bombings. Echoing the words of the owner of Time Life and Fortune magazines at the time, the equivalent of CNN, MSNBC, and perhaps Fox News today, its owner, Henry Luce, wrote, we have used the atom bomb to destroy two Japanese cities, killing and maiming hundreds of thousands of their innocent citizens. This is the most ghastly crime in history. It is a crime against civilization, he wrote. The bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were wrong, as wrong as it would have been had the Empire of Japan bombed San Jose and Oakland. And so today, we remember the civilians, the men, the women, the children, who suffered and died in the world's only instance of wartime nuclear weapons use executed by our beloved country. This is a big topic, and my words are hardly the first to wrestle with it. When I read the comments in support of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they're all from those who held the power to dictate what is right and what is wrong by saying as much. Those members of a particular caste in our society who show no shame in telling me, without equivocation, how to feel and to think about events telling me, even today, that they are creating more freedom by removing any ambiguity, shades of doubt, or equivocation around who is worthy and who is unworthy.
But you know, my mother told me, Richard, people will tell you up is down, black is white, and right is wrong. Even though I believe her with all my heart, somehow, for some reason, I still want to be on the side of those who insist they are telling the truth. Deep inside, something wishes I could believe the story that it was the right thing to do, that there was no other way to end the war. But right there, that very struggle tells me I'm wrestling with a lie. I remember the air raid drills in Grand Forks, North Dakota. It's bleak out there. In the summer, the dragonflies are as big as your hands. Head out into the halls with your coat. Pull your coat over your head and crouch down, my teacher said. Run, duck, and cover, they called it. This would protect us from the nuclear bomb going off somewhere nearby. I remember wondering, though, I can see the sun down the hall, coming through the glass doors of my school, and even with my coat over my head, I wanted to go outside. What was this all about? And somehow I thought, all of this isn't really going to help. Out of the mouths of babes. The truth is that our military planners estimated that if the U.S. used a nuclear weapon and was met with a response, over 600 million people would perish. A hundred holocausts, according to Daniel Ellsberg in his 2017 book, The Doomsday Machine. Today, the population of the entire United States is 340 million people. Sixty years ago, when those figures were compiled, it was 180. So why are lies so compelling? Maybe because the truth is less so. I have found it too hard to face the truth when our lives are built on something else, too hard to dismantle racism, oppression, sexism, transphobia, if all we've agreed to know and believe are lies, deceptions, half-truths, and falsehoods. And sometimes those deceptions hide in plain sight. I remember the images of the Japanese in my favorite cartoon, reruns of Bugs Bunny from that time. Bugs Bunny, quite a character, and I saw myself in him. He seemed so comfortable with his energy, fooling the hunter with androgynous hijinks. In those cartoons, he could be a buxom Valkyrie one minute and in a slinky evening dress another, something that appealed to me, all while fooling the great white hunter, Elmer Fudd, who was constantly thwarted in his attempts to make things the way they should be. I'm the hunter, I'm right, and I have a gun, those images said to me. Bugs wasn't having any of it, and merry subversion ensued. But there was one cartoon I saw. Maybe you remember it. The picture and caricature of an Asian man on a poster in Japanese military uniform with a human but menacing face. I remember it, and the lesson was clear. Here was someone to really fear. It was over in a cartoon moment, but the message was clear. And the message to me, if you listen to me, pretend hard enough, 
You can join me in fearing them too. The hunter with a gun? Don't think about him. He won't be after you, Richard. Just close your eyes and your mind to what you see around you. And never mind the light at the end of the hall. If you hate like I'm telling you to hate, you will be safe. That was the message. But the truth is, in a flash of the mushroom cloud, we will all be consumed. Listening to you, Richard, I'm struck by the stories we use as vessels of avoidance, quick fixes, so to speak, like the drop and cover story in which a school desk and a coat can save you from a nuclear blast the predecessor to the equally irresponsible school shooter drills of today, as far as I'm concerned. We need to keep looking for the holes in the stories we tell ourselves. We need to, to ask who is bearing the brunt for our comfort? Because when we flip sacrifice on its head by making it fear-based instead of love-based, we turn it into a superstitious or talismanic protection against the pain and hardship of life. Reason and compassion go out the window and we start the whole washed in the blood bumper sticker type of magical thinking that marks some, uh, that makes some folk think that uh, they are in a different category from the rest of humanity. Understanding the difference between gift of self and gift to self is not a small thing. It's crucial because the difference can be devastating to those we deem less worthy of compassion than ourselves, those we other. We, we killed 80,000 civilians and tens of thousands more who died horribly of burns and radiation exposure in Hiroshima. And we did it again just three days later to Nagasaki, where we killed 40,000 more civilians in an instant. I am not a Pollyanna. I understand that World War II was complicated. I know the, that Imperial Japan was as mad as it was brutal. I know it allied itself with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. It was, it was an appalling situation. And I also believe that we have a right to protect ourselves, but, I know a historian who insists that the bomb was the right thing to do because it saved so many more lives than it took. I asked him, so if you knew that dropping the bomb on yourself and your hometown where your family lives, if you knew that dropping the bomb on yourself and your hometown would have stopped the war and saved the same number of people, would you do it? He said no. So, we washed ourselves in their blood? I don't have answers, but I know that what we did in Hiroshima wasn't right. Nuclear weapons should tell us something about our astonishing capacity. Why is it so hard for us to imagine that we can manifest atomic level compassion in the world. 
Instead of surrendering to the belief that destruction is the inevitable path, I am become death, destroyer of worlds, as Oppenheimer famously quoted from the Bhagavad Gita, let us detonate the power of Mary. Now I am become mother, wisdom of worlds. I visited Japan a few years ago. Several impressions remained with me. First impression, it's incredibly neat. No garbage on the streets or sidewalks. It's not as if there's an obsession with neatness. They just don't throw things away on the street. Because second observation, there's no garbage cans, refuse cans, or places to throw away trash in public. It's just not done. I have no illusions about understanding the complexities of Japanese culture, traditions, and practices, but I do know clean when I see it, and I do know peace. The Japanese have rebuilt Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and in 1954, nine years after the bombing, the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park opened. President Joe Biden quietly and quickly visited the park recently, becoming only the second U.S. president after President Obama to do so. President Biden issued no comment on what he saw at the memorial, much less offer up a long-sought apology. No U.S. president has ever done so or is likely to ever do so. But before true healing begins, I believe on this anniversary of those horrific events, if we are to prevent a terrible reoccurrence of that violence, we will have to find a way.